Vancouver has a rental vacancy rate of less than 1%. And according to CMHC, we have the highest rental rates in Canada. Victoria is the third most expensive. And it's going to get worse. Simple supply and demand would say that very, very tight supply, growing demand on the population side, should be leading to pretty significant increases in rental rates, and that is certainly what's happening. Rental demand is expected to soar over the next 30 years. Uh, we're going back to a situation largely that we saw when the post-World War II boom came of age and moved out of the parental house. Back then, if we look back to 1981, the largest absolute age group in Canada and in the Lower Mainland was in the 15 to 24-year-old age group. Ramlow says the demographics today mirror those of 1980, with the 25 to 34-year-old age group being the largest cohort. So why is that? There's two reasons on the demography side. Kids of the post-World War II boom are now aging through those stages of the life cycle. And then uh, the federal immigration target's going up to 500,000 a year. And the majority of people within both of those groups rent. That begs the question, where will they live? Last year, there were more purpose-built rental units added to the market in Vancouver than any other year since 1990. Unfortunately, it's nowhere near the number needed, Landlord BC says estimating that more than 5.8 million units need to be built in the next seven years if we hope to keep rentals within reach of the average wager. Addressing the need won't be easy without a significant influx of private equity, money that currently is reluctant to invest. It used to be that the only time private developers would build rental housing is when there was a federal government program to help subsidize the financing costs and rents. Do you think it's time that we had more federal programs like MERBs, CCA, which encourage private investors, doctors, dentists, and others to invest in rental housing? That may help, but it's only one part of the rental housing puzzle. How do we bring more private investment to non-market housing working with provincial government? It's a good question. And once again, only one element in the rental housing puzzle. As Andy Ramlow points out, all levels of government need to work together. And that's from the municipal level in terms of things like approvals uh, or looking at uh, municipally owned sites uh, to, uh, to, to put rental on up to the provincial government, but then right up to uh, the federal side of things as well. If we look back to that 1980s period where the previous big bulge of post-World War II boomers got out of the parental house and into the housing market, uh, CMHC as, and the federal government had all kinds of programs. The MERB program, they guaranteed uh, for co-op and uh, social housing, they would write down to a 2% lending rate. So all levels of government need to, uh, to get on board. I think the other leg to that stool as well is we need to see all of our local communities get on board as well. Uh, this notion of uh, community resistance and nimbyism, um, we can't be just pointing the finger at everybody else to say it's somebody else's uh, challenge to deal with. We at the community level all have to, uh, to get behind some of these changes. The rental environment is complex and includes rent controls, social housing, and myriad rules and regulations, all of which most people agree are important, but become large barriers, especially now that interest rates have risen. Welcome to Conversations Live, Unlocking the Rental Housing Puzzle. 
Tonight we come to you from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations who have lived on and continue to call these lands home. For all of us who do call these lands home as well, housing is a hot topic. Bob Rennie says, housing has become so politicized that we're unable to have healthy conversations about it. He goes on to say when Premier Eby and the NDP talk supply, they're heralded as seeking a solution. But when Kevin Falcon and the BC United or Liberals talk about supply, they're seen as lining the pockets of developers. He says it's a tough perception to change, all of which makes having constructive conversations difficult. Tonight, our objective is to have a healthy conversation about the complex and massive rental housing puzzle and hopefully find the edges of that puzzle and start to piece together an image of a plan that can help ignite new rental supply. We have an impressive panel. They are Jill Atke, the CEO of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association, John Stovall, President and CEO of Reliance Properties and the Chair of the Urban Development Institute, Wendy Waters, the VP of Research Services and Strategy at GWL Realty Advisors, and Michael App, Director of Housing, Planning and Development, Metro Vancouver. As well, Dan Fimano of the Vancouver Sun is with us, and he, whom you just saw in the video, of course, and he'll also be asking questions of the panel tonight. Now, just before we begin, I, I want to express my wholehearted gratitude to sp the sponsors who make this evening possible. They are Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, Investing News Network, and Research Co. And our media partner is the Vancouver Sun. And we have supporters uh, such as the Surrey Board of Trade and Canadian Beef. And I want to especially thank Apogee Public Relations. And I have to give a big shout out to the crew at Oh Boy Productions, who are experts in live online and virtual event production. One last thing for viewers online, you will see a Slido dialog box on your screen. Please feel free to post a question. Sean, our Slido master, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us. And while I may not use all of your questions or even uh, uh, word them exactly as you have, they will inform me about other topics and questions that need to be addressed. So, to further set the stage, here is Mario Canseco of Research Co. who conducted a poll on the rental housing issue for Conversations Live. Amy, can you roll that tape, please? For almost two in five residents of Metro Vancouver, housing is the most important issue at the start of 2023. Other matters, such as healthcare and jobs, have a lower ranking. It is important to note that concerns over housing are more frequent among Metro Vancouverites aged 18 to 34. When Metro Vancouverites ponder two ideas that could boost rental options across the region, the desire for action is very high. More than 7 in 10 residents are ready to reduce red tape and allow more affordable rental units to hit the market, as well as to facilitate the use of public land for future housing developments. Metro Vancouverites seem to have reacted well to the regulations recently implemented by the BC government. Almost two-thirds are satisfied with the decision related to strata age guidelines, and more than half are in favor of allowing all units in a lot to be rented out. A few years ago, the BC government suggested that renters in households with an annual household income 
of up to $80,000 should be eligible for a renter's rebate. This pledge has not gone unnoticed by Metro Vancouverites, with 59% saying that the rebate should be implemented, a number that rises markedly among those who are currently renting. Compared to the state of affairs in late 2021, Metro Vancouverites are now more hopeful in the capability of their municipal governments to deliver affordable housing. The level of confidence fell slightly for both the BC and the federal administrations. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. Thank you, Mario. Now to our panel. So to all of you panelists, do we accept the premise that we need an extraordinary number of new rental housing units in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley over the next 30 years? This is not a short-term issue. The number is so significant that to address it, we must first address how are we going to get beyond the obstacles and challenges of building new rental housing. So to each of you, what are the negative and positive levers and how do we apply them to one, accelerate development and put brakes on disincentives? Jill, I'd like to start with you. Great. Thanks for the question and thanks for getting us started. It's really great to be here with you this evening. Uh, I was reflecting this morning that uh, back in 2017, we put together a plan that called for uh, a build out, a significant build out of 115,000 units over 10 years, rental units directed at low and moderate income households. And at the time, that number uh, seemed to shock people. And how, now here we are five years later and it's pretty accepted as the number we need and in fact people are saying that might be a, a bare minimum. And so the challenge is there. I don't think you'll hear from anyone on the panel that uh, that we don't have a significant rental supply challenge. Uh, I think that's pretty commonly accepted. What our challenge before us is really is how to enable that supply over the next 10, 20 years. And if we accept that a, a healthy, robust supply of rental housing is going to, to help to bring down rents or to stabilize rents, um, we're at least a generation away from that happening. So what are we doing in the meantime? And uh, pulled together a couple of slides that I think just helped to set the context really nicely. So one looks at the federal investments over time since uh, the 1940s up until 2020. So never mind the, the colors on that slide, those just speak to different housing programs. But the level of investment back in uh, going back to the 1960s and 1970s was significant. So in those peak years, nearly one in every five homes built in this country were nonprofit and co-op homes that provided livable, affordable, and sustainable homes for, uh, for generations of people. There's still families living in those homes today. And when we hear about federal, uh, federal investment under the national housing strategy, that's the, the bars in green at the tail end of that slide we're nowhere near the level of investment we used to see. So there's there's no doubt we need a significant scaling up of investment federally and provincially as well. And then we've also got significant uh, build out happening now. So 400 nonprofit and co-op buildings currently under development in large part, thanks to provincial investments. 
And uh, and I think a bit of a reality check, you know, median income uh, for renter households is in and around $60,000 as a household income. And that's sort of what we're trying to target. So $60,000 and below as a household income. And this, this slide here takes a look at a project in Delta. So what does it take to make housing affordable? This was a project uh, brought forward by uh, Affordable Housing Society in Delta. Break-even rents, so taking the profit out as we do in the in the nonprofit sector. Break-even rents on average were about $1,950 a month. That's with no investment from government. And then you layer in significant federal and provincial investment, and then you're getting down to uh, rents in the range of about $1,300, $1,200 a month. So that brings down rents significantly, and it shows the impact of that level of investment from senior levels of government. And all of a sudden, that's affordable now to somebody earning $52,000 household income rather than $78,000. And then you layer in municipal incentives. So the municipality waived the DCCs, and that brings rents down almost another $100 a month. So all of that combined, and to be clear, it's not easy to line up three partners in this way. It's it's kind of like a unicorn. It does happen, um, but it's a real challenge, and it takes years to get a project like this brought forward. But that's the level of investment required to achieve affordable rents on day one. And we need to be seeing much more of that level of investment um, to, to get at those households whose needs are not being met by the, by the market. And even with new supply, we'll continue to struggle for the, for the short and medium term. So in this sector of the market, are you able to move faster towards completion or delivering units onto the market than anybody else? Or are you handcuffed by all the same challenges that every developer faces? Yeah, certainly. We're, we've got the same challenges uh, in the nonprofit and co-op sectors moving a project uh, forward through the approvals process as a private sector developer does. There are municipalities where nonprofit projects are streamlined and certainly we're, we're seeing increasingly, increasingly more incentives are on the table, um, but it doesn't mean the project necessarily moves faster and we've got to line up three different partners on the same project, which actually slows the project down. Um, and then there are additional challenges sometimes that municipalities will layer on with housing agreements. So locking in rents before you have that, fu that funding in place uh, can really slow a process down um, by years, actually. Uh, so a project like that is going to take from point of conception to people moving into their new homes, you're looking at five, six, seven years. So, Michael, to go to my question, and you're more in a position to do something about this or at least affect uh, how some of those levers are, uh, you know, turned on or turned off, what can be done to help move the process forward so that we can get units onto the market quicker? Yeah, thanks so much. And I'm going to go back, actually, to my experience as Director of Planning for City of North Vancouver, which is a small municipality. We call it a postage stamp of a municipality, 56,000 people in the uh, City of North Vancouver. But we've managed in City North Vancouver to deliver significantly more rental housing than many other municipalities. So I, I think there is, in terms of those levers that you're pulling, uh, there are some that can be effective. And we had the good fortune in City North Vancouver through political leadership to be able to run a, essentially a natural experiment uh, on that topic. So we could look at 
what were we able to offer versus a comparable municipality? And what's the end result in terms of how many rental units are you actually delivering on the ground? So what we did in, in City of North Vancouver is we actually looked at what does it take for a rental project to be comparable to the highest and best use, as we call it. So it would have to be as profitable, as attractive as the condominium development that the, the market generally wants to develop. Uh, in order to do that, we pulled a number of different levers. So we looked at, I think Jill already mentioned the DCCs. So we looked at a, a partial waiver of DCCs. I think we were one of the only municipalities to do that uh, for rental housing. Full waiver of any community amenity charges. So we said rental housing is the amenity. We want as much rental housing as possible. The city of North End, somewhat unique, already 50% rental housing. We wanted to maintain that balance. We thought that was about the right number, but the market wasn't going to deliver that without these levers. <clears throat> so we waived all the CACs and said that the rental project is the bonus. We're going to give you more density. You can build more uh, when you're trying to do a rental project. And then we looked at every other lever that we could think of. So lower parking requirements, trying to look at approval timelines, although that's a challenging one to actually realize in practice, but kind of going the full gamut so that that project would be at least comparable and the market would want to deliver it. And the end result was uh, in the city of North Vancouver, I think last year in terms of completions, we had 650 uh, rental housing units out of, as the whole region, 3,800, which was a record for the region, but also a record for city of North Vancouver. And when you look at that on a per capita or comparative basis, uh, significantly above its weight and, and way higher than any of the other municipalities in the region. So I think it does show that, you know, natural experiment-wise, the, the policies can work if you're pulling the right levers. You're nodding, Wendy. Over to you. <laughs> okay. um, yes, we actually uh, have a development that just finished in the city of North Vancouver, so some experience. And yes, it's a, an easier municipality to work to work with. I think my my development colleagues would say. Um, but one of the levers, you know, I think to to go back to Jill and and just you know what Michael ended with, you know, the there's still the approvals challenge that this project that's just opening there. It was basically seven years from when we got the site to people are moving in today. We also have one on Robinson Street. Similar time. Similar time frame. And we manage the money of pension funds and pension funds invest in real estate as about 10 to 15 percent of their holdings to pay, use the income to pay out unit holders. So the pensioners, this money is what pays people's pensions. So when they put money into building a rental project, they really need it to be into an income producing property, producing funds for the, the pensioners within probably five years would be the ideal. It was three years to build. You know, so it's about three years to build. So then two years to get through every part of the approvals process would be nice. I said it took longer than that. Um, so that's, I think, one, one thing that, that could change for the capital that builds rental housing that's, say, um, from, from pension funds is it needs to be faster. Obviously, you know, there's some municipalities trying really hard, but there's still, uh, and both of these projects didn't have a lot. They didn't, I guess the North Van one had a public hearing, but the, the city of Vancouver one did not. So in a minute, John may tell us how long it takes if you need a public hearing. Uh, and certainly we know that can take even longer. So I would say the one thing is trying to find a way to get things uh, uh, to the approvals and under construction faster. Um, and, you know, and, and that's the, the first thing. And then, you know, the, you know, the other thing is, you know, how some of the restrictions on what you can rent units for in the future can make a project less viable. And then sometimes they don't get built. So you've got the time and then you've got the situation of the future rent rent flow and whether that's going to be enough for the pension funds. And so rent controls are one that uh, that can be a, a bit of a barrier as well. Um, 
Right now, inflation, we know what inflation's running at. Inflation on the costs at rental, uh, you know, at the rental buildings is higher, even higher. And yet, you know, rent control is at 2% and uh, the costs are higher. So we still have new sites in this market, but some of the other pension funds that work in this market and the pension fund managers are taking a really serious look and our clients are as well. Where else in North America can you build housing where it's faster and you have more certainty that your rents can keep up with inflation. Do you have an answer to that question that you just posed of where where you can build faster? <laughs> outside of this, not in the lower mainland uh, would be. Uh, but one would be, I think, uh, you know, Calgary could be maybe a place where a lot of investors are going to look to go back to because the vacancy rates are down to 2%. In the purpose-built rental, they added, I believe it was something like 48,000 new people last year. So it was a lot of population growth. It absorbed the existing rental stock. So I suspect we'll see some capital go there. The United States obviously has, uh, there's a lot of options. Uh, some of the private capital, some of the more family money in this market that's really experienced at building housings and building up and down the west coast of North America in particular uh, and uh, you know adding to the housing supply there and, and you know and, and choosing to, to do that whereas so there's a lot of capital available we just uh, we, we can make it easier and uh, there's there's money to build rental housing in this market yeah and that capital is going elsewhere John you, you know from your perspective you have your, your own company but you also represent the urban development institute right, yeah. as you hear this and you think about what are uh, what's available to us and what's standing in the way you know how do you answer that question what, yeah, what do well, we do i think it was our past mayor who who had the statistic that something like 90 percent over 90 percent of the developable land in the region is owned by the private sector um, you hear our colleagues struggling to put partnerships with government together and multi-levels of government funding and agencies and so on. But undoubtedly, to me, the solution is to unlock the power of the private sector. We've got um, almost unlimited resources. And if we could change the rules of the game so that there was a competitive advantage for that capital to go into this product, we'd be amazed at the results and how quickly they would occur. What we have instead... Um, due to a whole series of decades long of, of, of planning processes, is government that's profoundly, let me say it again, profoundly obstructionist to the formation of housing, whether it's condominium housing or rental housing. And I mean the federal government, the provincial government, and the municipal governments. They're all equally involved in making housing very difficult. And instead of, and, and Wendy's hinted at it, instead of finding ways to encourage that capital to come to our market to invest and take those risks on those projects. It seems just about everything they do, both from an approvals timing point of view, but also setting unreasonably high hurdles for formation of housing and then very frightening and uncertain regulatory environment for rental housing once it's built. To me, I'm going right to government. I mean, in the middle of 2022, we have two other big problems with formation of rental housing, which is, of course, interest rates and construction costs. But those will be things that will get sorted out over time. The one I don't see getting fixed, and then we have to fix, is we have to get government out of the way. And we can talk about what the different levels of government are doing to, to, to screw up rental housing and all types of housing, but it, it, the list is as long as your arm in both arms. So, yeah, but, but do we get government out of the way? Because we heard Andy Ramlo say, no, no, they have to come together. They ha they have to be working in, in harmony to be able to no, create programs. The more programs. government that are looking at your project, the longer it'll take to to get approved. I mean, if you if you ever hear the city say they're going to be expedited processing of a permit, it just means it'll take longer because more people have to look at it to make sure it's moving quickly. <laughs> it's just we've got to get government 
out of it. We've got to get government to stop micromanaging every single aspect of every single project. And and at the end of the day, the real problem is that um, we're all trying to work for people who are unhoused or aren't housed yet. But municipal governments are elected by people who are housed. So you've got the fox guarding the chickens. The, the municipal politicians are not working for the people who need housing. They're working for people who have housing. And until we fix that, we're not going to fix anything. So how do we fix that? We've got to get senior governments uh, to basically, and, and we've, you know, through UDI, and, and I've had involvement with uh, now Premier EB when he was housing minister, probably the best educated Premier in the history of the province on housing and what the issues are. And at the federal level, we've, we've really just got to get municipal level of government who are in charge of town planning and land approvals. We've got to get them operating in a way that they understand that they're working for the needs of the greater society to provide housing and not working for the vested interests of the housed. Dan, you have a question? Sure. Uh, grab the microphone there, okay? Thanks. So on that note, uh, apart from building new rental housing, you touched on Premier EB, who previously was housing minister. And earlier this year, was it late last year, he announced uh, this housing acquisition fund. I think it was $500 million. Jill, this is an idea that I talked to you about years ago. I know that you and some of your colleagues had tried to advance this kind of idea. The argument was basically that we couldn't produce enough new affordable rental housing as fast as it was being lost. Uh, either it would be acquired by private equity and real estate investment trusts and and it would the rents would raise and so those units are no longer affordable or in some cases it might be redeveloped. And there was this trend that was being seen not just in Vancouver or BC, but in lots of different places. So the government announced this new thing. It got noticed across Canada and elsewhere. It was a big move. I'd be curious to hear what any of you guys would think about that move. Um, $500 million for the government to be able to acquire apartment buildings, basically old apartment buildings when they're coming up for sale before the private sector can buy them. The nonprofit sector gets a crack at it with government support. What do you think of this? I think maybe that's more question for you. Sure. Yeah. I'm well, I, I definitely want to hear Jill's answer, but I have a feeling I know what it is. But yes, sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. Please. No, no, Jill, I'd like to hear yours first, but I want to hear others as well. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I think that's that's a really valuable addition to the conversation. You know, what we've said about the Rental Protection Fund is in a healthy functioning rental market, there would be no need for a program like this. Um, but we're really far away from a healthy functioning rental market. So I mentioned we have 400 buildings currently under development. If each of those buildings is 50 units, uh, that's 20,000 units currently under development. In the last census period, uh, we lost 100,000 rental homes, nearly 100,000 rental homes in this province, renting below a hundred uh, below a thousand dollars a month. So we're losing that stock faster than we can replace it with new affordable stock, um, and that's why this rental acquisition fund is really important because it enables nonprofits, puts a little bit of equity into it 
pairs it with uh, financing uh, to close the equity gap so that rents can be maintained uh, at affordable rates in perpetuity. Um, and so that's the idea behind it. Uh, I think the rationale for it is strong. It's needed because we're losing uh, so much of that stock and people are suffering as a result. Wendy. Wendy. I think what, what I would say is it's a Certainly, uh, not you know, not opposed to it. And Jill's really explained well why it's needed. But one of the reasons why it's needed is we just aren't building enough supply. And so, with any of these government programs, I sort of look at: is it helping with the underlying fundamental problem, new supply? We've just we're just changing who owns the supply that's in the affordable level, but it's not contributing to a solution. And in fact, if by not building more housing, we're actually making you know this challenge worse because we have lots of people coming into this market with great jobs. They can afford whatever housing's available. And so since we're not building new for them, they're you know renting some of the older stock and it's effectively displacing that opportunity from someone with less money. We've seen the leaders of some of these big real estate investment trusts who are buying up you know, 50, 60, 70 year old apartment buildings have commented that the reason it's such an invest attractive investment class is precisely that, that it's so scarce. They're not uh, in Canadian urban markets. We haven't built as much apartment apartment buildings as we did for several decades earlier. And so because it's scarce and it doesn't seem like the shortage is going away anytime soon, it's an attractive investment class. And then, but of course, you're not dealing with a different kind of investment class. It's people's homes. And so that has... Yeah, well, and that's and sometimes we, you know, the, the whole industry gets a, gets a bad name from from some of this, but some of what they're buying up is really old product with a lot of deferred maintenance. You know, roofs that are leaking, elevators that don't work, appliances, that, you know, everything, and they're coming in and, and fixing that up. So they're actually, you know, giving some new life to that stock. So we do have to to recognize that. Um, but the other thing again to think about this capital that's coming in and buying those, some of that capital would much rather be building new. But they can't. It's so hard. And again, if it's especially whether you're a REIT or whether you're a pension fund, at some level, you can't just have this money just sitting on a piece of land for seven years, hoping you're going to get a chance to build something or get something at the end. You need to have that income. And so buying an older building and, and going through this gets you that income flow faster, which is what you know your pension funds or your investors are are, are needing. Um, so that's something that's yeah part, part of it. But at the end of the day, it's because we're not enabling enough new supply to be built. And so it creates a whole cascading range of problems, including, uh, you know, how, what Jill, you know, explained really well. John, your response. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that. And I, I get Jill's explanation that it was, it, it's, it's a protective measure, that, that housing fund was a protective measure. But, you know, let me step back and say, take a look at the Broadway corridor plan that was approved by Vancouver City Council uh, late last year and near the end of their term. It's it's a primarily a rental focused community plan that that really does reward or attempt to reward significant densification for primarily rental dedicated purposes. Very little condominium in that in that zone, and necessarily, the vast majority of projects that are going to get built in that zone are going to displace mm -hmm. a, a portion of existing aged rental stock, and so it's sort of a mixed signal to say. Uh, oh, evil developers, we're going to stop you from buying, uh, buying these old apartment buildings uh, and, and displacing the people in them, which I, I get is a serious issue that needs to be addressed on a case-by-case -case basis. But, it, but at the same time, you know, 
David Eby strongly supported the Broadway corridor plan. Um, uh, pre premier, sorry, previous mayor Kennedy Stewart told me he felt like David Eby was sitting on his desk every day waiting for that plan to get approved. And it, it is going to create massive displacement. And it, there's plans to how to address that and how to compensate tenants and bring them back at discounts and so on. And that's sort of being parsed by the development industry now. So it's sort of speaking out of both sides of your mouth saying, let's not let developers buy these old rental buildings, but at the same time, let's promote a plan that's going to going to going to literally replace hundreds of rental buildings over the coming years with big brand new buildings that are going to are going to replace them. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's kind of the nub of it, that displacement issue, it kind of comes back to that, right? We've got to maintain the social license to be able to deliver the supply. And if you don't have policies in place that are around that, and I think this is one attempt to do that. And, you know, there are other ways that uh, that we can get at the same issues. But, you know, reflecting back six years ago to when we initiated the policies in the city of North Vancouver, which were supply-based, the idea was, yes, you were potentially going to re rehabilitate or uh, you know, tear down an older building. People are going to get displaced but you're going to have more supply, you know, that's going to relieve some of the pressure on the housing stock. And we put in one of the first of its kind policies so that people who are in that building, you know, they had to be relocated to uh, to another building and then find opportunities for them. That six years ago actually worked reasonably well. And, and we did it, uh, you know, many, many times. And I attended many public hearings and I never once saw a tenant uh, attend a public hearing uh, for one of these projects because they were they were looked after and they found other opportunities in our in our housing market. Today, it's a very different story uh, where we've got vacancy rates that are hovering around 0%. Uh, so same policy, and you're looking at, you know, these are people who've had safe and secure housing for you know decades. Mind you, it is market housing, and it is housing that's reached the end of its functional life, uh, but they've got nowhere to go. And now they're faced with, you know, I've, no, I've not only got to leave my community, I might have to leave the region. Uh, so it's a significant issue, and I think, you know, solving that issue at the same time as we solve the supply issue is what's going to enable us to, to move forward here. So who solves that issue, though? Is it a private equity that is going to come in uh, to fill that gap, or is it going to be through a wide variety of programs to bolster the nonprofit sector to, to fill uh, many elements of that gap? Because when I think about people who are being displaced, they've been under the protection of uh, slowly increasing rents that are grandfathered back to what they started on. Suddenly you're saying, no, we're displacing you and you're moving back out into a market that's probably not within your income range. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's both. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, John's points are well taken. You know, we, we do need to speed up approvals. We do need to generate supply. We've, uh, we've got a lot to do on that topic. But at the same time, you look at I think the lower 20% of income earners in Metro Vancouver can't afford any market housing whatsoever. Uh, so something has to happen there, right? And in our region, I think we've got, Jill might have the numbers off the top of her head, but I think it's around 7% uh, you know, social housing and nonprofit housing in total uh, as a region. Now you look at 20% are priced out entirely of, uh, of the market. So you know, how, do, how do you address that? And I think that's when you start getting to, we do have to rethink our housing delivery system in BC at the same time as we're leveraging that private equity and, and delivering supply. So it's a it's a yes and. Yes and. <laughs> Jill, yes. I, I just want to go back to um, to something that, that John said. Um, and, and really it's around displacement for sure and land use. So, um, you know, if the only place that we're allowing rental buildings to be built are where rental buildings already exist, 
we're going to have a displacement issue. There's there's no way around that. We have to really take a, a solid look in this region about how we're using our land. The easy stuff is done. There's no more greenfield development. Industrial sites have, have now been converted into residential districts. And now we're kind of going piecemeal through zones where rental housing is already allowed. Whereas the vast majority of our residential space in this region and in the city of Vancouver is zoned for single family housing. And I think that's where we need to, if we're worried about displacement, we need to be taking a serious look at, um, at, at who gets housed where in the city. That is a really important point. The number of single family homes in the region is, it's, it's out of line with the need like the geometric area yeah massively the city is dedicated you know on a map is dedicated to the lowest form of housing lowest density form of housing we have okay you're a city councillor and uh, i come to you now and say you have to tell those people in their homes that sorry you can't uh have a single family home um and uh over the next three or four years we're going to enact this but don't go to the polls and vote me out yeah well i'll go back to what i said before that it's the fox guarding the chickens the 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 housed and the comfortably housed are primarily the most influential decision makers in electing and, more importantly, unelecting politicians. And renters probably, I would say, I mean, it might not be totally true, but I, I've given the kind of transient nature and overstressed nature that a lot of them are living, working hard and making ends meet, probably aren't as well represented in the voting system as well. So this is where we had hopes that, that Minister EB and now, now the Premier EB was going to really, you know, intervene in a very significant way to, to, to force municipalities to break through this. And, and, and you know, the, the, the political calculus is that they can, they can blame the senior level of government. They can say, hey, sorry, we have to re, I totally agree with Jill, sorry, we have to rezone your single family neighborhood. And they are doing some of that, granted, but we're being told by senior government to do so. And, and one of the other things we suggested to the minister was don't just give the province the stick and, and tell people in single-family areas that they, they, ha- they have to be rezoned. Make it cost something, right? Create a, a taxation regime where, where it's, it's very difficult and very painful to, to continue to defend that type of inefficient land use. And you know, ultimately, people will follow the dollar and they'll, they'll move in that direction. So I totally agree that, that you know, we just keep mowing over the old rental with the new rental and we go through all this angst and disruption and, you know, very difficult situations for people because we won't go outside these arterial boundaries mm-hmm. where, where renters always were. I, a few years ago, I interviewed a woman from Oakland, California, who had organized people who were wanting to rent. And she said, when there's a, a council meeting, uh, who shows up? Mm-hmm. The people who show up are the ones uh, that you pointed out who live in that neighborhood. Right. And she said, she started to organize people who wanted to live there, and they became represented before council saying, hang on, I'm a young family. I'm a single mother. I'm a working professional. That's where I want to live, too. And you're telling me I'm not allowed to live here. And it had an impact on council. Do you think that that's a good idea? I think that's already happening. I think Abundant yeah. Housing Vancouver does a very good job at yeah. getting, uh, you know, renters from across the region out to support rental housing or other, and other kinds of housing. COVID when people could phone into a public hearing. Yeah. yeah, and I think we do have to look at those those public hearings. Like, you know, who 
who was represented at them. And I, I was asked to, uh, to speak at one in Kitsilano, that sort of infamous fourth in Balaclava, uh, 35 units that took six days. And because I'm a researcher, I thought, oh, let's learn a little bit more. I used to live a block away from there, so it's partly why I was asked. And thought, well, let's learn a little bit more about what's been happening in, in this Kitsilano area and discovered that there basically been almost no new housing added in. I think I looked sort of back about three censuses in the housing stock, and there was almost nothing new compared to this region. And then I also looked at the demographics of the region, and it was about 90% white and about 8% Chinese Asian and 2% everybody else. And that doesn't reflect our region at all. First, and it was slightly, you know, obviously slightly older demographic too. Our region is, you know, 50%, more than 50% non-white uh, and, you know, 50% foreign born. And so I, th- you know, I think when we, it starts to reflect there's a missing equity, diversity, inclusion, reconciliation piece in these hearings when most of the people speaking were probably white and over the age of 55, uh, defending Kitsilano as they knew it. And somehow these 35 rental units were going to bring in crime. They were going to, you know, bring shadows. Um, this is 35 units. It's not very big, uh, but it was going to change their neighborhood as they knew it. And so that that history in Vancouver, obviously, of gatekeeping or you know, certainly the, the white colonials came in, pushed away the indigenous people, put a lot of restrictions on housing in terms of what other ethnicities could buy and not, you know, own and where they could live. So I think that's something we, we need to think about in this region is, or in, in at public hearings, is how are they more representative of everyone in the region and the needs of everyone in the region? And why do we let one group gatekeep uh, the housing stock? And that's what we've been doing. And so we think, you know, the, the, the elected officials will say, well, majority of the neighborhood doesn't like it, so I'm going to vote against it. Well, you're, maybe you're not, you know, you're repres- you should need to be representing society and not just, you know, an exclusive group in a neighborhood. It's a single city, right? We don't have... <laughs> we don't have wards, which is even... Yeah. So that brings up the ward question. Would it help? It's even worse. No. Worse? I, I think the the markets across the country where there's a ward system, it, then that they become their, they they become very dependent on that very exclusive group of people for their job, and so they do have to be seen to be representing them. Whereas at least in Vancouver, I actually like that they're at large, and you need to represent the. I, I think you could say a lot of things about the public hearing uh, process, but really, like fundamentally, it comes down to we have a highly transactional planning system in British Columbia where almost every project has to go through that approval process regardless of you know is this project of a significant enough scale that yes we do really need to do all the supplementary studies we do need to have you know a fulsome public discourse around those things that get mentioned at public hearings like traffic and shadows and other things or you know is this a pretty poor form of project that ought to be as of right and in many other places you've got many more projects that go through the the as of right approval which means it's already zoned uh, you do still need to go through, you know, a design review and you still have to get uh, building permits, but you don't go through that public hearing process. And I think with some of the legislative changes, we saw the province kind of nudge in that direction. But still, you know, municipalities have to look at uh, how do you change these zoning codes to, to get to the point where you can move from a system where you've got, you know, 98 percent of projects going through a discretionary approval to some as of right. And that's actually, a, you know, a tough question because, you know, it's a planning culture, but beyond a planning culture, that's how municipalities get other things that have made Vancouver a really great and desirable place to live in in the first place. So absent that tool, what do you replace that with? And you, you know, and then you get back to legislative changes are required. Mm-hmm. Like the change where, where they changed the charter or the community um, legislation that 
a council could waive the need for a public hearing if a project was OCP compliant, but they just made it an option to waive. Mm-hmm. I think the mayor of North Ham right, was the first one to we do were. that. Yep. Um, we're suggesting that industry is suggesting that they change that rule so that a municipal council can't have a public hearing for a project that's OCP compliant. Mm-hmm. That would be a good way to move that legislation further. We've had a very um, enabling relationship, I think, between the province and municipalities in this province that doesn't exist in in all provinces. Um, and we see that through some of the legislative changes. So um, uh, more recently, um, yes, decisions could be delegated to staff if they were consistent with with official community plans. The challenge is official community plans are, and this to your point, Michael, are are often very out of date um, and and vague. And I think the real opportunity for citizen engagement is what do our our communities across the city and across the region look and feel like? Where do we want housing to go? Where do we want amenities to go? Rather than a project-by-project basis that pits people against each other. And the reality is nobody who is, eh, I'm okay with that building going in down the street. I'm not going to spend five hours at a public hearing to get up and say that. It really enables and favors um, the the negativity. There was one building in my uh, neighborhood, five single family houses came down a three-story building went up, and one of the the rarities in Vancouver, it didn't need to go through a public hearing because it was uh, consistent with the Grandview Woodland Plan. A young planner had her life threatened at the information session. That's how vitriolic it was. Building opened last year. There's a great new bakery there. People are lined up around the block to get their baked goods on Saturday morning, once once a building is in a community, it becomes part of the fabric of that community. Um, but people are resistant to the change because it's different from what they know. So there needs to be a way around that. We promised viewers that we would uh, respond to some of their uh, questions that came in. Sean, uh, you've got you've got a question here from viewer. There's quite a few questions coming in about how government can financially encourage um, investment, and, and I'll read one here from uh, Robert Wilson. It says, "Why are why are governments not supporting private investment into social housing, supportive housing, low income housing, etc.? Give private developers tax credits and waive all federal, provincial, and municipal taxes on rental for five years." Didn't we do that in the 1980s? In, in yeah. essence, yeah, Merv. yeah, it worked well. Built a ton of ton of stuff. Should we be uh, encouraging? federal and provincial governments to move in that direction you know before encouraging why don't we start with not discouraging um (laughs) you know the the you know like the gst that we have to pay when we build a new rental building and believe it or not when we renovate a rental building to say add life safety systems and air conditioning and other things to make it a livable building and prolong its life we also have to pay gst the federal government has promised on more than one occasion to eliminate gst on new rental housing no sign of that happening. Um, And then at the municipal and provincial level, there's any number, as I said before, of of these very, very expensive processes that we have to go through. Uh, Now it's a lot of it. A lot of it is the sustainability agenda coming into things, which is, you know, on its own, right, laudable, but is really driving up the cost. So government could just reduce the costs and reduce the barriers. They'd see a lot more happening without direct investment. Yeah, And if we need to do more from there on, we can do direct investment. One of the programs we used to have was the federal uh, taxation system 
would allow you to sell us if you're a professional landlord you're in the landlord business you could sell an asset and provided that you took that capital gain that you've invariably made on that asset and reinvested in a new rental building within a one or two year period you could not pay the capital gains on that that was eliminated so bit by bit um, both by erecting taxation barriers and and having very 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 high approval standards and long timelines government is discouraging you know and they could do so much by just pulling some of that stuff back as you speak i wonder why would anybody want to step into the rental housing development market right at the moment well so here we have a situation where this and i i literally lay awake at night thinking about this we have an how many industries do you see where there's an almost an unprecedented demand for product rental housing at just about any price 6-7 dollars a square foot and we are shutting down the factories. So the developers of the factories were virtual factories um, and we are shutting our factories down right now because of all the resistance to building rental housing. The ones we've talked about, government can't really blame them or they can't easily fix the cost of construction or interest rates. But when those two things are, are running in a negative direction, they should be working even harder to get out of the way. What we see is them just micromanaging and controlling and taking taking a cut, taking a slice. I was talking to a developer the other day who has a rental project in East Vancouver with 20% of the units below market, 20% below market, CMHC average, which is really low. And he's sitting on a $20 million ask from the city for community amenity contributions. So, you know, it's just... Mm. You know, call me a complaining developer, but like, you know, that's all I do all day, every day is try and build stuff. And just the number of things that they throw in your way is remarkable. So to be talking about how can we build more housing? How can we build more housing? This massive private sector who's not going to solve all the problems. I get that. But can build tens and tens of thousands of units. And literally, they're just standing in our way at every step we try to take. There's an interesting book out right now called uh, New Spirit of Capitalism, and they talk about uh, governments and free enterprise working together to solve the big societal problems that we all face. But it points out, unless there is a a stable, uh, consistent legislative framework where everybody understands that this is the way that it is and is going to be for a long period of time, it's very, very difficult to get private equity to say, okay, I'm going to come forward. But when you bring that private equity, you also bring with it remarkable innovation. But is that anathema to what we want to do in the housing market? Yeah, I speak to that one. I mean, I think uh, my colleagues here may disagree, but I, I think there's a place for you know, the public-private partnership component of requiring those inclusionary units, as we call them, or the non-market units that are delivered with a private project. And I think if you design that policy well and repeat it across the region, that could have a massive effect in addition to uh, you know, loosening some of the strings that enable uh, the supply of rental housing. But I think to your point, you, know, you have to do that consistently in a way that's predictable. And what we've got now is 21 municipalities. Some of them have policies, some of them don't. Each one has a different requirement for the rent level or the number of units and how that works. And it's a confusing landscape to, to operate in, and it's hard for capital to navigate that landscape. So I think as, as Metro Vancouver, that is one of our roles, is trying to provide some of the best practices and, and research out there so that policies like that can be more effective and, and ideally a little bit more con- uh, consistent across the region. Dan? So, Michael, I'm glad you mentioned that. There's 21 municipalities in Metro Vancouver, 
and you touched on the success that the city of North Vancouver, where you used to work, had in encouraging rental housing production. But as you say, it's a postage stamp of a municipality in this broader region. The district of North Vancouver is immediately to the north. West Vancouver is immediately to the west. There's some other municipalities that haven't traditionally been as amenable to adding new purpose-built rental housing. So if a given city council or city hall staff is successful or, or wants to encourage rental housing, how much of a difference can it have if you've got this checkerboard or patchwork of different municipal governments with different approaches, and if some are encouraging rental housing and others are not, how successful can we be in the program? And now that you're working at Metro Vancouver for the regional government, how quickly will you fix this? <laughs> yeah, those are the intractable questions that keep us all awake at night, right? And it's uh, it does seem like you're running faster and faster all the time to stay in the same place on some of these uh, topics. And it can be very dissatisfying if you're one of those municipalities that's over-delivering and you recognize there's no, you know, the, the boundaries are artificial and the issues are, are regional. So how do we get at that? And one of the ways we get at it is regional planning, which looks at you know, what do we need to do collectively? What do we need to do in each subregion? But I think the other way in terms of, you know, where the conversation is going right now and, and back to John's earlier piece here is like the, the province is stepping in and realizing we have a collective action problem. It, it doesn't work unless all the actors are at the table and all the actors are contributing. So how do we get there? And I think there are different ways to go about that. And we're about to experience one of them, which is to impose a housing target on, uh, on certain municipalities. Hasn't been announced which ones. And, uh, and then potentially to have, you know, some actions that are put into place if those municipalities don't deliver those housing targets. I think there are other ways through, through strong regional planning and through collaboration to, to get there. Uh, but we're, I think we're about to see that collective action problem and, and some solutions to it uh, in action in our region. So you're saying you think the premier is moving in the right direction where he's starting to signal, uh, if you're not moving fast enough, I'm going to override you and I'm going to make things happen. I I think it's certainly a very consequential change to the way that planning works in British Columbia. I think there are different ways to to go about that. And certainly as Metro Vancouver with uh, with municipal members, so we'd be looking to do that in a, in a way that collaborates with uh, with the individual municipalities. And I think the province is saying that, you know, we're going to work with individual municipalities in setting these targets. Uh, so we'll learn the details. Uh, the regulations haven't been written yet on the Supply Act, uh, but it'll be very interesting to see how the province goes about that. Wendy? Well, what I was just thinking about, I mean, completely, you know, agree. That, and I'm hopeful that Michael's right. There's going to be some some push on supply. What I worry about is it's it's too little, too late, you know, that mm-hmm. said it took, you know, it takes seven years or more. I mean, John can probably talk about if you have to go through a public hearing in Vancouver, how many years it takes to get a building built. And we have a crisis now and we've got these targets for by 2030, 2032, or at least we know how much more rental housing we need. You know, our models have it probably 150,000 units of purpose-built rental needed by 2032. In, in what geographic lower range? Mainland. All lower mainland, Metro not Fraser Valley. Metro Vancouver. Okay. Um, but and how do we get there? There's you know ten thousand units under construction right now. It's kind of been the flow. Net thirty eight hundred um, finished last year. You know we need probably to be trip you know tripling quadrupling that. And yet the capital's leaving because it's so difficult to get things uh, under construction here. So 
I worry, like I think the consistency across the region, consistency of what you can expect is absolutely needed. What I worry with the with um, what's coming is it's not just not going to be fast enough to keep the capital here uh, and ready to build. And so by the time it comes back, and even other things, as John mentioned, interest, you know, interest rates and, and construction costs maybe come down. We're now another five years down the road and we haven't been solving the problem. And so now we need more, even more people need non-market housing. So that's what I worry is it's, this is moving. It's the right idea. Is it moving fast enough to, to help, help the situation? Can I just go hide under a rock right at the moment and hope <laughs> that this will go away? Because the more that's, you talk, the more I worry that we're not going to find solutions. Well, that's what the cities are doing. They're, they're, they're pulling the cover over the head turning out the light and hoping that the monster doesn't come in the room i mean that that's literally what they're doing they're afraid of the political consequences of, of making the necessary changes that need to be made so they're to varying degrees the different municipalities are all just hiding i thought it was interesting the premier's new infrastructure fund a billion dollars divided and i'm starting to learn a little bit more about it divided across i think 152 municipalities and we're hearing that that fund is going to be divvied up according to a population, but also whether or not a municipality is over or under their housing targets, which need to be updated. And I think this is quite clever, and it may just be the beginning of a lot more of that. I mean, this is not the stick, this is the carrot. If a municipality goes and applies or, or looks at what they get from this grant and realizes that, hey, first of all, there's nobody here, and secondly, we're not even building enough houses for those people, they're going to get six dollars of the billion dollars right and and other municipalities that are that are achieving and, ex and exceeding their growth targets and having good growth in their populations are going to start to see the benefit okay now we can build the rec center now we can build the new sewer line now we can do what we need to do and and i think that that part of it is what the municipalities there needs to be a bookend right what one side of the books is you know pushing back against the growth from the community engagement. Mm -hmm. The other side of the bookend needs to be, look, look how we can benefit and how our community can benefit if we, if we do some of this tough decision-making. So that sounds like an interesting idea, but so much of it appears to me to be window dressing because you say a billion dollars spread out over 162 yeah. communities for infrastructure development. Well, what are you going to build for that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, $500 million to, uh, you know, protect some uh, older buildings. It's the numbers have to be significantly yeah. higher. I mean, he may be trying to point the way for the feds to a degree as well with that and trying to encourage them to do something similar. Yeah, I think I mean, there are there are encouraging signs, I think, in the in the last few months um, pointing at a potential direction for the future. And one of them is, you know, to tackle the, you know, what what John would characterize as an overregulation issue. From my perspective, regulation exists for a reason, right? We're, we have health and safety. We're going to make sure people aren't living on contaminated sites. We're going to make sure buildings are accessible and we're going to meet higher environmental standards. All of these are good things. This is and, what and we want. And not to mention earthquake uh, standards. I mean, all we need to We've do is seen... look, take a look at what happened in Turkey in the last couple of weeks. And so these standards are good. I think what the challenge has been has has been layering over time, right? And so that leads to policy incoherence, right? So you've got two policies now that are not necessarily saying the same thing, and it means everything's become more siloed. Uh, and so the province has announced a permitting strategy for housing, which I actually think is... Uh, 
is quite hopeful. It's going to take time. It's not a silver bullet. There are no more silver bullets in this, um, in this, uh, complex problem that we're facing, but it's going to ensure you've got one set of eyes rather than, uh, you know, 92 different sets of eyes looking at either the same application or different applications that need to go in for different things. So I also think we'll see some streamlining on, on the provincial permitting side. Is that with fingers crossed, you're hoping? Always. I, I never uncross my fingers <laughs> these days. They're always crossed. But hope isn't a plan, is it? Um, and, and that's the hard part. Yeah, and I think we're seeing some positive indica- indications. To Wendy's point, it is it is a frustrating environment to be in when you've been sort of signaling at the impending crisis um, and the worsening crisis for years and years and year- years. So yes, we're seeing action. Is it enough? Probably not, um, but we're starting to see the right signals. But these things are going to take time. It, we will not start to turn the corner on this crisis for some time. Let's go back to another question from Slido. A bit of a different question, something we haven't addressed yet uh, from Nathan. Why are we limiting Airbnbs? They're taking away a lot from the rental market. Sorry, aren't we limiting Airbnbs? I mean, they're illegal. Individual municipalities can enact bylaws uh, through their zoning code or business license regulations to regulate them in different ways, but they're, they're not regulated. Uh, in a provincial uh, capacity, it's a land use decision that individual municipalities are making. So you'll see Vancouver has a fairly comprehensive set of guidelines around when you can do it, when you can't. Uh, some municipalities have none at all. Others have, uh, you know, strict strict guidelines there. But I think there's a very active conversation on that topic in British Columbia. The, the conversation there, I think, went a little bit by the wayside during the pandemic because you saw some of the pressure come off and many of those units were turned back. Uh, into the rental market, which I think uh, was was very helpful during uh, during that time. But we're starting to see now, you know, uh, those numbers are, are inching up again. So I think there'll be a very active conversation. I think we've heard from the province that this is on their legislative docket to look at you know, some province-wide framework for how this is regulated. Dan, yeah, oh, I thought you had another question there. Well, I don't have anything else on Airbnb, but um, no. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to talk about rent control. Okay. <laughs> I got a feeling Don might have something he'd like to share on this. Uh, you know, the, the provincial government has capped the maximum allowable rent increase at below the level of inflation. Um, you know, John, we've heard John talk about how government needs to get out of the way and Wendy making the point that institutional capital, which funds a lot of rental housing construction, needs consist needs reliability and needs to be able to project. And obviously, if rent increases are capped, understandably institutional investment is frightened or worried. Uh, but then we look at some other markets. So in Seattle, which in some ways is a similar housing market to, Va- housing market to Vancouver with expensive real estate, uh, they've had a big rental housing construction boom. And I, I don't think there's uh, the same rent controls that we have. And they also have a really big homeless problem, bigger homelessness problem than Vancouver has. And we all agree Vancouver's homeless population is way too big for a city that's as wealthy as we are. So is there some role for the government to play in controlling rents? Seattle, you have way higher rental vacancy rate. There's a lot of empty apartments. Well, a lot of other people are sleeping without homes. How does rent control factor into there? Should there be any rent control or should there be a stricter vacancy control that ties to the unit and not the individual tenant? Well, John, you know, I, 
there's a long tradition in British Columbia of, of, of rent control. I, I, I don't think it's probably realistic to expect that we'd ever become in any, in any reasonable time period a, a non-rent controlled environment. I, I think the, the bigger issue is just the slow chipping away and undermining of, of that of, of those regulations on the viability of rental housing. You know, we had two uh, percent plus inflation. Then we had inflation. Then we had um, zero and zero and one. I think during COVID, and then you know, Premier told me himself directly when he was a housing minister that they would not monkey around with the rental housing uh, inflationary adjustment to rental housing. And sure enough. They just decided that although you know although inflation's running at six percent and cities like Surrey are increasing their property taxes by seventeen percent, et cetera, et cetera, that they're going to just arbitrarily force landlords to sit on a on on a on an arbitrary I think it was two percent increase in rents, and this is what really you were talking about capital needing kind of certainty and 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 predictability. Wendy's pension fund clients need to be able to say okay, average turnover is X and we get rent increases there when we go to market, so no vacancy control. And if a, and then for the rented part of the building, we can count on, we can project inflation. We might be wrong. We can project it. We'll get rent growth. And every time they come along and just kind of monkey around with the regulations for political, purely political purposes, for popularity purposes, they undermine the confidence of that capital. And I've had uh, BCIMC, Quadreal, who is investing the pension earnings of the government employees of the of the province of British Columbia, including all the city workers and all the municipal politicians, say that if they if vacancy control comes in, they will not build in BC rental. Period. Full stop. Because it blows up their ability to project and 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 have reliable rent growth to pay out the pensioners who are working at the city, making up the rules that stop us from building rental housing. So. You know, it's very dangerous. It's not going to go away, but why can't we have inflation? What is it about the private real estate sector that it's forced to subsidize housing so that the incumbent tenants in our region are are renting for 48% less than the people who have to rent and pick up a new unit? Why is our industry in particular that's needed to create new housing being forced to subsidize 50% of the population with below market rents. Well, it's we're not we're not, gro- not happening with groceries or airline tickets or cars. I mean, the, the just housing industry is making big profits as well and is doing very well during a They're period of regulated. high inflation. Yeah. Wendy? Yeah. Um, I saw. Yeah, well, okay. On, on, <laughs> well, I was mostly just agreeing with, agreeing with John, actually, yeah. that, that, uh, yeah, that it's, it, it's a, it's a challenge for certainty. Uh, how do you make, how do you make things work in this market? And, uh, you know, if we think back to when it was, uh, CPI plus two, uh, Ontario was CPI. So this market for attracting capital that looked okay. And there was more available stock, you know, as well, so that there was options for people to, you know, people to move around and there was, there was some turnover. And, uh, and now, of course, we've, you know, we're, we're below inflation. Well, Ontario is roughly doing the same, I believe, if I remember correctly. But I think the one other piece of this in terms of what they're trying to, you know, to go back to Dan's question is we don't have enough non-market rental housing. So who we're really trying to protect are people 
the lower incomes that you know that, that need to rent from from Jill and her colleagues and the and the nonprofit sector, and yet we're doing a very blunt instrument because a lot of the people who rent and I pull the stats, custom polls from the census, we give a lot of renters making well over a hundred thousand. Uh, I talk, you know, we we talk on UDI rental committee about you know what does it look like in our different buildings. Um, some not us, not John another rental provider, they had some people with seven-figure incomes renting in their buildings. So this rent control applies to everybody, whether you make, you know, combine a couple each making, you know, maybe they're, you know, an engineer and a doctor and they're making 500000 a year and they're renting because they like that lifestyle or they don't know where they want to live, they're new to the market, they're getting protected by rent control as well as people who really need it. And so that's the thing with the rent control. It's a very blunt instrument. And I think, you know, maybe we need to look at is there a way to give more subsidies to people with low income so they can afford their rents mm-hmm. rather than really capping the rents for everybody? And we, we, you know, despite what you hear in the media, we're tracking, you know, where are wages going? There's a lot of housing um, market or a lot of income out there from people who rent or as well as, well as buy, but uh, in this market and salaries and wages have been going up. And, uh, you know, from what, the, especially for renters and what we're tracking. So, and new people moving to this region. So there is a lot of, um, you know, I'm saying not saying everybody, I'm just saying there's a lot of people out there that can afford their rents, could afford an inflationary rental increase uh, this year. And yet we're protecting them and that's keeping you know, uh, you know from having to pay that, and it means that uh, we end up with less housing, and then that's bad for everybody. From your perspective, Joe, rent control, how does it impact your sector, uh, both positively and maybe it has its limitations or uh, negative sides to it as well? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. Um, you know, our sector exists to meet the housing needs of people whose needs are not met by the market. So to Wendy's point, you know, that used to be 10% in the 1970s. Now it's significantly more. There are more and more working professionals whose needs are not met by the market. We can't build out supply fast enough in, in our sector to, to um, achieve that uh, challenge immediately. On the rent control issue, I agree that predictability is really important. When we have looked at jurisdictions that have had either lighter or no rent controls, so Ontario didn't have rent controls in new purpose-built rental uh, for a long time, um, not a lot of new new rental was built at that time. New Brunswick doesn't have rent controls. We're not seeing new rental built at that time. So it's not to suggest that capital is going to uh, is not going to leave if controls are too tight, but there has to be something more to explain the lack of new rental development beyond rent controls. I was speaking to Ryan Beatty uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he posed the question: We have underutilized land uh, throughout the Lower Mainland. Uh, and some of it sits vacant for months and months and months on end, only to be used for a fair. Why? Why do we have so much underutilized land? And what can we do to pull that into the mix? And maybe we create special um, you know, rules and regulations around how we're going to develop those properties. Yeah, we, we know that we don't have a shortage of lands. I mean, that is one of the things that we look at. Sure, we are, we're a constrained region. We've got the mountains on one side, the border, you know, that, that narrative that we all know. 
but we've already talked about in this conversation, you know, how much of the land base is either underbuilt or, or there are indeed, you know, a significant number of vacant lands uh, all through the region. And some of these lands are in really well-positioned uh, places where we've done many things, I think, better than a lot of regions in terms of aligning, you know, where growth is happening and some of our investments in, in transit. But we do have a ways to go on that. And I think some of it comes down to tax structure. Uh, and you know, that's a complicated subject, but um, you know, when, you, when you've got a tax system that uh, doesn't provide that incentive to, to develop the land, it, it's more likely to sit there. So that's something that could be looked at. Uh, and then it comes back down to you know, land use of making some of those lands you know, easier to release onto the market and uh, you know, to get developed, because I think we need to be doing that. So does that happen, though, at the individual city or municipal level, or can you have a more regional uh, impact when it comes, especially if we focus on underutilized lands? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the region's an influencer and, and it does, uh, you know, research and best practices and it sets out you know, a growth pattern for the region. But then the implementation happens at uh, the level of the individual municipalities. So it's those municipalities that are putting into place you know, their official community plans. They have to be consistent with that regional plan. And then they're putting in, you know, enabling uh, regulations, whether land use, development controls, the other things that we've been talking here. So there are ways to, you know, bend those regulations to make it more attractive to develop in area A versus area B or to disincentivize, you know, that, that vacant land uh, staying vacant. So there's, there's certainly ways to do that. And the other element of it is uh, public lands. Uh, we certainly have a lot of public land. Uh, that is underutilized, and it's underutilized because it's owned by an agency that has a mandate. Uh, but could it be, uh, you know, yes, that end, you know, this is a location for housing. And, uh, you know, we, we've looked at, you know, some of the quantum on that. And, you know, it, you get to quite staggering figures fairly quickly across the region in terms of what could be done. So I don't think there's a land shortage. It, it is about, you know, how do you deploy some of these uh, properties more effectively? Isn't TransLink looking at starting to get into that business a little bit more? They're allowed to now. The legislation change, yeah. I think is, is that a significant changer? If you can have rental housing above uh, rapid transit station, there's a population that we know is more likely to use rapid use transit and it's good I, for, I think it uh, could transit be. ridership and yeah certainly and and you know agencies becoming a little bit more entrepreneurial is maybe an effective way to capture that land lift that we're talking about which right now we're doing you know through the laborious process of CACs or individual negotiations well you know governments can become a player in purchasing that land maybe even before an investment's made in transit and when the investment arrives you, know, you capture that value and that goes back into public amenities, whether those be housing or whether they be other social uh, objectives uh, of the government. So I, I think that's a, a big place for some innovation. I remember Bob Lee suggesting that when they were building the Canada line and there was no uptake on it. Mm-hmm. Um, did we miss the boat there? And are we, we sitting again with- on Broadway? Yeah. I don't think any of the stations yeah. going yeah. on Broadway, except for maybe one or two PCI, I think, yeah. have anything on top of them. Yeah, the PCR. Yeah. yeah. Uh, industrial land. Sorry. Go, go ahead. No, no. Yeah. Uh, there was a recent uh, community plan for the False Creek Flats, which is something in excess mm-hmm. of 400 acres of underutilized industrial land, like less than a mile from Broad and Georgia. And industry was heavily advocating for, yes, you need industrial, you need light industrial, office industrial in that area. We'll build what you're already expecting in terms of industrial, 5FSR, whatever, and we'll mm-hmm. put rental on top of it. You can take the elevator to work. And this, um, a lot of these problems that we're having are kind of rooted in this um, 60s era planning thinking where like 
you live over there and the factories over there and the shopping centers over there and you know the retails and the ports over there and there's a real concrete thinking in, in, in the planning disciplines and about bringing uses back together but that there's huge opportunity there to do light industrial uh, with office light, light office uses with residential on top and they and, and actually instead of that idea threatening that industrial getting created building that residential will actually cause that industrial to get created would actually drop the cost of industrial rents as well because there'd be so much of it getting built to put the rental on top so a lot of these like we encounter a lot of just kind of weird old-fashioned thinking that 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 and and i think that someone said something recently which is really interesting that that we should really be going into the universities and seeing what planners are actually being taught because a, a, a lot of what you deal with when you deal with these people is kind of this this channeled thinking that they have coming out of university and a lot of it is is really misinformed and really out of date wow so yeah. to that end i mean it's certainly not my job to stick up for municipal employees or regional government <laughs> employees but what would you say to those uh, you know some viewers out there who might say well maybe these people might make mistakes or work in archaic systems or whatever occasionally but it is their role to stick up for the sort of public good and the private sector you know as 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 much as we rely on the private sector and in housing we heavily rely on the private sector if we just let them do whatever they want that's not necessarily in the no, public's I, best interest no, nobody's advocating that but I, I don't think they actually are looking out for the public good and i don't mean that they're working against the public but actually what they're looking out for is the policy we have a saying at udi that the policy is the client and what happens for these planners is year after year decade after decade councils come and go and just keep pushing this idea that idea this policy trees this driveway that sustainability green roof energy performance they, they just keep pushing 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 it onto the planners and the planners role uh, uh, accidentally i think becomes to represent this body of work that they've worked on that they worked on for their bosses who are you know successive councils and there the, the policy is the client so when you go to make an application for development they're not looking at you going how do we get your development to work they're going how do we stop you from breaking the policy? And that's why, and, and it's not really their fault. I mean, we've got to get the politicians have got to go in and say, get rid of a bunch of that policy or put it on the side for now. Or, no, I'm not talking about life safety and building code and size. I'm just talking about all this stuff, right? Well, as Jill had pointed out, layering on. Yeah, layering and, and incompatibilities. And then on top of that, culturally in these municipalities, we, we, we have a kind of, they, they call it consensus, like it's a weather system that came over them one day, like a cloud called consensus. And they actually don't know how to make decisions as an organization because everybody has their role, everybody has their little body of work that they represent. And the, the executives in those organizations don't really have the mandate to say, I know you wanted that driveway there and I know you wanted the tree there. This is what we're going to do. Thanks for your opinion, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to move ahead. They don't do that. They just wait until everybody agrees and then it finally moves ahead. And that's one of the reasons everything takes so long. It's an organizational illness. It's not just the rules themselves. It's cutting through. We all are leaders. We can sit in a boardroom and make a decision. Go, thanks for your idea. Thanks for your idea. This is what we're going to do. It doesn't happen in the city. So yeah. we're just about out of time. But out of fairness to our uh, Slido viewers, 
Sean, one more question from, from viewers, and then I'm going to come back to each of you for sort of closing remarks about how, how hopeful you are that we're going to be able to find our way forward. One other question that uh, turns an earlier question around, looks at it from a different perspective uh, regarding obstructionist governments. The other way of looking at this is that development groups try to use every possible shortcut to maximize profits. Remember leaky condos. In my opinion, that's why there are such extensive government controls. Is that an informed question? I can answer it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Leaky condos were caused by the building code and energy conservation regulations that came in in the 70s and 80s caused buildings to not ventilate properly. But that's a story for another day. Well, and actually, it, just more recently, the um, uh, our experience with the heat dome, where you know more than six hundred British Columbians died in our deadliest natural disaster, some of the buildings that fared uh, fared worst in our sector and where residents fared worst were newer buildings, um, because in our region we're not accustomed to uh, building with cooling systems. It hasn't been required up until about three years ago. So exactly. So, so the dynamic is changing very, very quickly. Still a believer in regulations. I think there's a way to have good regulations in place um, and move things through the pipeline a little bit faster. Well, so if I could just add something on that. You know, I look at the purpose-built rental building uh, developers, so groups like us, we're, we're hoping to manage these assets for our pension clients for 20 to 25 years. So it's in our best interest to make sure that not only they meet code, but they don't leak. They may go well beyond code in terms of we've been putting cool, you know, putting cooling in. Um, so that you've, you know, do you need to regulate us because we might do something wrong? Well, no, we're not. We're going to do it. Right, because we need to manage this for the long term. This isn't a sell at once. This is we might we hope that we would have turnover and we would be having a chance to, you know, provide homes for people. You know, every year new people might move in. So I think that's just something on on that of why the importance of purpose built rental in that it is building designed for the long term for renters, not for a one time sale where you can sometimes run into these problems. Obviously, most condo builders in this market I think build good product, but this can happen. And, and it's going to happen far less likely uh, in the purpose-built sector. So I'm not sure that we've come out of this with solutions. We've identified what challenges are. You're scaring the heck out of me. Um, but I'm hoping that there is going to be that spirit of innovation and cooperative energy that will bring us together. Where do each of you sit on how you think we're going to do over the next five to ten years in addressing a situation that is going to require significant investment and commitment to getting from where we are now to 2050, where the population of the lower mainland is expected to soar. Michael, I'm going to start with you. I guess I'll take the first yeah. stab at that one. Yeah, we're solving the intractable problems, right? I mean, this is, uh, I think we've all said it already, and it's generations in the making, and it's going to be generations in the solving, and we're kind of at that precipice now. Where, where there's a pivot point and you don't have to go back very long and no purpose-built rental housing whatsoever was being built. And that goes back, you know, for a full decade and a half uh, or more. Um, so, you know, we're really recovering from that gap. So I, I see some hope in that, in that, you know, we're having a conversation about purpose-built rental and we're recognizing, you know, we're shifting as a region that we're, we're going to be a region of renters. And, you know, what does that mean? And uh, the, the development industry is shifting over. Certainly when I started at City of North Vancouver, no one was knocking on the door saying, we want to do a purpose-built rental project. In fact, 
you know, I had to convince and or force or regulate people in order to, you know, make that possible. Uh, and, you know, that's no longer the case. You know, we saw a lot of traditional developers transition over and say, hey, we're diversifying our portfolio and we want to do a range of things. And we know that, you know, this is needed and uh, there is a way to make money doing this. So I think it's in its infancy and that's why we've got these pains. So we've got a huge, uh, you know, uh, task in front of us uh, that maybe our systems aren't up to. And, you know, that's the, the, the challenging component. But I think we're starting to recognize in more and more corners that those systems do need to change. And, uh, you know, there, there's, we, we can do better and the pressure is being felt. Like when you've got year over year increases in rents of 26% at turnover, which is what we saw in the last CMHC report, you know, stuff starts to kind of sharpen up with a little bit of clarity in terms of, you know, what kind of issue we've got in front of us. And I do see that there's uh, some innovation and experimentation going on. Uh, including in the halls of uh, <laughs> local government and, and others. So uh, cautiously optimistic. Well, I'm happy to hear that there's some positive energy <laughs> there. Wendy. Uh, I think I'd, I'd add the cautious optimism in the sense of, you know, how much long-term capital is interested in building rental housing in this market. So it's just a matter of getting some of these regulations out of the way. Uh, finding, you know, the city of North Vancouver has found some innovations of ways to streamline, to put parallel process in. Uh, but I think at the municipal and in any government level, it's finding people, your job is not to the policy, to John's point, your job is to find a way to say yes to this rental housing. So you haven't, you know, you have a new role. It's to find a way to make this rental project work as fast as possible. I think with some lever changes like that, there's a lot of capital that wants this market. So I'm optimistic. Obviously, it's a generational problem to, to solve, but that we're going to uh, be getting better every year. There's two votes for optimism, Jill. <laughs> I would not be doing what I do if I uh, if I weren't an optimist by nature. Um, so I'm optimistic because uh, because the tide has turned, even in terms of our public conversation on on housing and the housing crisis. I moved to this region in 2001, and that was what everyone was talking about at the time. Those seem like the glory days now that we're couple of decades on. Um, and so I think when you have uh, the leaders of all of the all of the major banks and credit unions uh, in this country uh, and uh, and economists really uh, underscoring the need uh, to solve the housing crisis, I think that points us in a good direction. I'm seeing positive signals from certainly the provincial government. I think more and more municipalities are getting on board. Um, the dynamic is shifting between the province and municipalities. There was a tight point there for, for the last year or so, but I see a lot more collaboration happening there. And at the same time, I worry. I worry about the uh, the increasing social divisions we're seeing in our uh, in our communities as the crisis intensifies. And I don't think we're through the woods on that yet. Uh, and I worry about what the future looks like for people who are being priced out of this market. John, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we have to. We haven't talked about the federal government a lot. I think the municipalities, some of them, are coming around. The province, certainly, if we have some stable government there, are coming around. The feds are still a huge problem because I think they they really have to be the ones who put the major money behind building a lot more social housing because the private sector, at the end of the day, can only do so much to address affordability. If you try to do more, you're just transferring costs to the other renters. And on the on for, for everybody else who sort of can operate in the market, 
We have to de-villainize the private sector. We have to accept the fact the private sector is, is going to be and has always been the dominant provider of market housing. And to de-villainize and, and, and find a way to tap into that almost infinite capital that's available. Capital is global. If you provide a competitive advantage for capital, if people in the US and Europe start saying, let's put money into rental housing in Vancouver and BC because we make more there. It's almost unbelievable what you can accomplish and also the innovation, which, which it tends to flourish more in the private sector. That's what we need to do. I, I don't know how hopeful I am that, that, that it's going to be achieved. I'd sort of call it a coin toss. I'm equally worried that this, as you say, generations in the making problem and social division, which is starting to really escalate, that governments might be forced to do even more harm to the housing market before they fix it in an attempt to try to signal that they're trying to protect people. And that might protect the tenants more that are there, and it might protect some incoming tenants, but ultimately it'll, it'll create a huge, much worse problem. So I'm sort of 50-50 here. Well, I'm going to take a little bit of hope from here. Well, you know, Jill says at least we're having these conversations now, and there is this growing uh uh, a commitment to say, okay, let's find a solution. And I'm reminded by what Margaret Atwood said, you know, never underestimate what a small committed group of people can achieve. Uh, and I think that we can, and so long as we keep having these kinds of conversations, this may be just the beginning and maybe we found the corner piece of the puzzle and not the full edge. But I, you know, I think that we shared some pretty good ideas tonight and we could keep going for another few hours, but I want to thank you all for uh, being here tonight. Uh, sharing the depth of your experience and insights. And uh, we'll come back and visit this topic again. And hopefully it will be with even more enthusiasm and optimism. <laughs> and to all of you who are watching, I want to say thank you for hanging in here with us. Um, uh, this has been a remarkable uh, Conversations Live, uh, looking at the rental housing puzzle that we're all having to try and put together. Join us next month when we take a look at Climate Smart Agriculture, how we can raise better food and lower the environmental impact. So thank you for joining us tonight. See you next month.